Chapter 9 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wes Freeman. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 9. Intellectual Awakening. 750-479. Part 2. Religious, Moral, and Scientific Progress. Origin of Religion in the Worship of the Dead The most obvious, and perhaps the most primitive, origin of religion is the phenomenon of sleep and dreams. The body is the principal self, but along with it is the soul, a shadow or image of the body. While the real self is unconscious in sleep, the shadow double communes with other souls and foresees the future. Death is closely akin to sleep. The body decays or is burned, but the soul survives with hunger and thirst, and with a power at least to annoy. These conditions account for the worship of the dead. Thence a childlike imagination peopled the world with similar spirits, whose like demands created the worship of natural objects and forces. A Social Origin of Religion The growth of these ideas was reinforced by deeper experiences of the soul. Men were conscious of possessing powers, which they vaguely confused with the forces of nature. Personal emotions or powers were greatly intensified by becoming social, when felt or exerted by a group of human beings accustomed to a common life. Their sacred dance or other collective ceremony wrought magically upon nature in the interest of the group. Doubtless it was this social emotion, whose power surpassed the individual comprehension, which led them to believe in the existence of a spirit, demon, of the group or community. He was a being like a human, though generally invisible and working with greater mystery and power, whose life was bound up with that of his community. When a demon came to be conceived as independent of its natural object or force or social group, or when it acquired a definite personality, it became a god. To maintain relations with either of these beings, a social group founded an altar to him, and instituted a ritual for his worship, watched over by priest or priestess, whose office was sometimes hereditary, sometimes elective. The chief element of the ritual was a sacrifice, a meal partaken of in good fellowship by the god and his worshippers. There were also prayers, hymns, dances, and the presentation of gifts, votive offerings, for the adornment of the shrine. In the imagination of the worshippers, the deities generally took the form of men and women, though taller, stronger, and more beautiful. Heroes and Communal Deities Usually the spirits of the dead were worshipped by the family at its tombs. Heroes were the more powerful spirits of men who had been great on earth, the founders of cities or other mighty benefactors of their kind. Every association of men as a gens, fratri, dime, or tribe in addition to other deities, had its name-giving hero, the real or fictitious ancestor of the group. Every state had a special guardian deities, worshipped by all the citizens. Each of these gods enjoyed an independent existence. The Athena, or Zeus, of a given locality, or fratri, or state, was a personal being distinct from every other Athena, or Zeus. Myth, Original and Derived Meaning Originally, myth was the expression of a religious idea or emotion in the form of a story 
created by a fresh, childlike imagination. As the Greek mind in the course of development began to look for the causes of usages, institutions, and of the world itself, it was for a time satisfied with myths. These stories, however, never became dogmas among the Greeks, but remained plastic, freely molded to suit the poet's fancy or the genealogist's purpose. The Temple In Minoan time, the chief deity dwelt in a chapel of the palace, and during the Middle Ages he was content with a modest shelter for himself and his movable goods. In the course of the 6th and 7th centuries, all the more important gods came to be housed in well-built, artistic dwellings. The simplest form was the temple in Antis, whose cella and vestibule preserved the main elements of the Homeric palace. Thence developed the double temple in Antis, which for greater beauty and for the shelter of worshippers might be surrounded by a peristyle. In this case it is termed peripteral. There grew up as a distinct type the prostyle temple, whose vestibule was fronted by a row of columns. A development from the latter type is the amphiprostyle temple, which, too, might be made peripteral. The temples of Greece and her western colonies were prevailingly of the Doric order, a growth from Minoan elements. The earlier examples of this order give an impression of sturdiness and substantiality, gradually transformed into gracefulness with increasing height and slenderness of the columns and the diminution of the curves. A new element of beauty was added when, toward the end of the sixth century, the Greeks of certain places began to use marble instead of the earlier limestone. Earliest Metopes The most ancient stone temples have fallen to ruin, but the Metopes from one of the earliest, at Selinus, Sicily, near the close of the seventh century, may be seen in the Museum of Palermo. In the sculptural groups that adorn them, the lines are monotonously parallel, the human forms are disproportionate, the attitudes are rigid, and yet a certain freshness and originality stamp the work as Greek. Advance in Art under the Pisistratidae, 560-510 In the age of the Pisistratidae, a great advance was made throughout Hellas in architecture as well as in other arts, and the patron of those tyrants was directed to bringing Athens abreast of the general progress. From the islands of the Aegean Sea, artists flocked to Athens to paint vases, build temples, and chisel reliefs and statues to satisfy the improving taste of the community. In honor of Athena, patron goddess of the city, Pisistratus surrounded her temple on the Acropolis with a peristyle. The limestone of the building was stuccoed and painted in brilliant colors dominantly red and blue, in the fashion of the age. For the first time at Athens, marble was used in architecture. The metope and pediment sculptures of the Athena temple were of that material, imported from Peros. Among the other works of these tyrants, we may merely mention the gigantic temple to the Olympian Zeus, founded by them beside the Elysus, to be completed six centuries later by the emperor Hadrian. The Older Parthenon Emulating the tyrant's zeal for building, the party of Cleisthenes, after the completion of his reforms, began a new and more splendid temple to Athena on the Acropolis, south of the existing shrine, on the site afterward occupied by the Parthenon. Unlike the old temple, it was to be of pentelic marble. For the site they first constructed a terrace, 
for leveling the southern slope of the Acropolis, and placed thereon the foundation. Many marble drums, too, for the temple had been conveyed from Pentelicus, when the invasion of Xerxes cut short the work, till it could be resumed years after by Pericles. The pre-Persian building is known as the older Parthenon. Statues, especially of women. Religion expressed itself not only in the temple with its sculptured decorations, but also in statues, whether of the deity or his worshippers, or of famous athletes or of benefactors of the state. A common material was wood, and the most revered image of Athena on the Acropolis, even in the period of highest artistic development, remained a mere log with human features crudely indicated. Equally early, doubtless, was the use of soft limestone, from which, about 600, the artists passed to marble. Most primitive is the statue of a woman found at Delos, in representing Artemis, or a worshipper of that goddess. It is a marble block with the roughest suggestion of a woman's form and dress. The advance made within the 6th century may be estimated by comparing one of the maiden statues dedicated to Athena on the Acropolis, no long time before the Persian War. Though slightly stiff and conventional, the form shows a noteworthy gain in grace and naturalness, and the drapery is delicately elaborated. The air of refined luxury which surrounds this Athenian lady is doubtless an importation from Ionia, whence the softer elements of civilization came to the Greek peninsula. The Statues of Athletes in the series of Apollos extending through the 6th century, we may trace the development of the nude form of the youthful athlete. The original type seems strongly Egyptian, the posture is rigid, the only deviation from strict frontality is a slight advance of the left foot, perhaps to suggest walking. As in the earlier women's statues, the arms are attached to the sides, and the bodies show little knowledge of anatomy but we can trace a steady advance through the series, and at the beginning of the following period we shall find a marvelous mastery of athletic form and posture. In contrast with the Orientals, the Greeks like to display the unclad forms of men both in life and in art. This predilection contributed vastly to the development of naturalness in art and to a true appreciation of human physical perfection, involving a respect for the dignity of the body wholly foreign to the Orient. Reasons for the Rapid Advance of Sculpture Having begun in the 7th century with a skill far inferior to that of the contemporary Egyptian, the Greek sculptor rapidly brought his art abreast of the general progress of Hellenic culture. This success was largely due to his willingness, while learning all his predecessors could teach, to study external nature and the human form, continually anew, and quite as much to his constant effort to express in art the best thought and the noblest aspiration of his age. Hence it results that the material he has left us, fragmentary as it is, forms a most valuable source of our knowledge of the Hellenic character. Festivals The Panathenaea The gods required for their own happiness not only beautiful temples decorated with reliefs, statues, and paintings, but also festivals wherein the citizens might gladden their own hearts. A most prominent feature of Athena worship at Athens was a festival held every summer, the Panathenaea. Pisistratus ordained that every fourth year the festival was to be given, as the greater Panathenaea, with especial magnificence. Prisoners were set free, and slaves were permitted to feast with their masters. 
There were races, war dances in armor, athletic competitions, and a grand procession of all the free population, the priests and magistrates, the populace in varied festival attire, youths and girls carrying articles and utensils needed for the sacrifice. The object of the ceremony was to bring the goddess the peplos that had been woven and embroidered for her by her chosen girls. The procession passed through the streets and up the steep ascent of the Acropolis to the great altar before the temple of Athena. Pisistratus added the recitation of Homer's poems, and this new feature bore immediate fruit in introducing epic subjects into the rising art of painting and in giving an epic content to the drama, then in its earliest beginnings. From Formalism to Emotional Worship the tendency of all ritual is to lose its meaning and to sink into dry, barren formalism, which fails to satisfy the emotional need of mankind. This principle holds for the ceremonies of Greek worship. As their springs of emotion dried up, the void came to be filled by the worship of Dionysus. His cult, as some assert, may have survived among the peasants of the Minoan age. At all events in the 7th and 6th centuries it received a new impetus from Thrace where the same god, or one closely like him, was venerated. The belief prevailed that in childhood he was torn to pieces by the titans, but restored to life through rebirth. The half-human, suffering, ever-youthful god, the spirit of life and nature and man, awakener of joys, appealed directly to the emotions. Throngs of worshippers, the majority women, roamed in wild nocturnal revels over mountaintop, and danced in ecstasy to the roll of drums and the clashing of cymbals. By such means they became one with their deity, partakers of his immortal life. Orphism In the sixth century, an effort was made to transform this unbridled worship into a theology and a church. The leaders of the new movement looked back for their master to Thracian Orpheus, who appears in story as a minstrel of wondrous power. The faith was spread by missionaries who traveled throughout Hellas, initiating converts and founding societies of worshippers. They had their sacred scriptures, containing prophecies and hymns. Adopting the worship of Dionysus, they gave it a more regular form and a higher spiritual interpretation. After the emotional rites of initiation, they lived ascetic lives. They were under the impression that the soul is suffering the punishment of sin, committed in a previous existence, and that the body is an enclosure or prison in which the soul is incarcerated. By purity of living and the practice of their rituals, however, they were able not only to cleanse themselves from sin and secure eternal happiness, but even to redeem the souls of the dead from punishment and Tartarus. Eternal Happiness Great in the coming world, they thought, will be the bliss of the righteous. Evenly ever in sunlight, night and day, an unlaborious life the good receive. Whoever have been good of courage to the abiding, steadfast thrice on either side of death, and have refrained their souls from all iniquity, travel the road of Zeus unto the tower of Kronos. There, round the islands of the blessed, the ocean breezes blow, and golden flowers are glowing, some from the land on trees of splendor, and some the water feedeth, with wreaths whereof they entwine their hands some in horses and in bodily feats and some in dice and some in harp-playing have delight and among them thriveth all fair flowering bliss it behoveth therefore in this life to walk in moderation refraining from evil-doing insolence and presumptuous thoughts 
The Eleusinian Mysteries In no state was Orphism accepted as a part of the public worship, though the Pisistratidae were warm patrons of Onomocritus, its most distinguished prophet. But Athens did not hesitate to worship Dionysus in shrines of his own and to join him with Demeter and her daughter Persephone, the great goddesses of Eleusis. Their worship, once local and eupatrid, had now become national, open to all Hellenes who were free from religious pollution. Once a year the devotees of these goddesses, gathering at Athens, moved in procession along the sacred way to Eleusis. Arriving there, the initiated entered the shrine, Telesterion, where were performed the sacred rites which none dared disclose. Those who wished and were qualified were initiated. The mysteries seem to have consisted chiefly of a passion play, representing the sorrows of Demeter, when her daughter was carried off by Hades in the joy of recovering her. The ceremony probably once referred to the death of vegetation in winter and its rebirth in spring. In this period, however, it came to signify death and the resurrection of the soul to eternal happiness. O oh, thrice blessed the mortals who have seen these mysteries before descending to Hades' realm! For those only will there be a future life of happiness. The others there will experience naught but suffering. Thus, Demeter brings the initiated the sweetest consolation at death and the hope of eternity. In this way the joys of Elysium, in Homer's conception open to the favored few, were democratized by the progress of Athens toward popular liberty and equality. Origin of the Drama and the Dramatic Festivals at Athens In addition to a share in the Eleusinian festival, Dionysus had his own holidays, connected with the culture of the vine, for his was the ecstasy, too, of the wine cup. As his worship developed, many festivals, in honor of the dead, were transferred to him. In December, the villages of Attica celebrated the rural Dionysia, in which a chorus of men in rustic attire sang in his honor an unpolished but joyous song, the Dithyram. There was a festival in the city, the Linnea, in January, and another, the Greater Dionysia, in March. Similar festivals were held in other parts of Greece. The wild strain sung to Dionysus was transformed by poetic art into a choral ode. The singing was interspersed with recitation, which gradually developed into the dialogue. Thus arose the drama. This growth was fostered by the tyrants. At the court of Periander, the lesbic poet Arion set the dithyram to order, and at the court of Pisistratos lived Thespis, reputed the first dramatic writer. Through the encouragement of popular cults, as distinguished from those monopolized by the nobility, the tyrant aimed to free the masses from eupatrid control and attach them to himself. For a long time, however, the drama must have continued crude and immature. Even at the close of the period, it was essentially a cantata in which the singing was occasionally interrupted by dialogue. The Four Great National Games All Hellenic states had their festivals similar to those of Athens. In tradition, the oldest home of competitions in athletics and music was Crete and Lacedaemon, whence they extended to the rest of Hellas. Most festivals remained confined to a single locality, or at the widest to a city-state, but in a few instances games in honor of a local deity became, for unknown reasons, pan-Hellenic. Such were the four great national festivals celebrated at Delphi, 
on the Corinthian Isthmus at Nemea, and at Olympia, in honor of Apollo, Poseidon, Nemean Zeus, and Olympian Zeus, respectively. At the founding of the Olympic Games, a simple foot race sufficed, but other events were successfully added till the Games included many kinds of athletic contests together with the races of horses and chariots. Especially noteworthy is the pentathlon, comprising running, wrestling, leaping, spear-hurling, and discus-throwing. The contestant had to be an all-around athlete, with a body symmetrically developed. In the Pythian Games, celebrated at Delphi, it was natural that the contests with the songpipe and lyre, and in singing, should be included for the honor of the god of music. There were no such competitions at Nemea or Olympia, but poet and rhetorician there found private audiences for their productions. The prize at these games was a wreath of wild olive, bay, or other leaves. The Competitive Struggle and the Glory and Inspiration of Victory The greatest of the festivals, founded, men thought, for his father Zeus by Heracles, prince of athletes, are the Olympic, where is striving of swift feet and of strong bodies brave to labor, but he that overcometh hath, because of these contests, a sweet tranquillity throughout his life for evermore. At the close of the competition, the just judge of games, fulfilling Heracles's behests of old, lays upon the winner's hair above his brows, pale gleaming glory of olive. Then in the night, following the victory, when the mid-month moon, riding her golden car, lit full the counterflame of the eye of even, all the precinct sounded with the songs of festal glee, in honor of the victors. The triumph was celebrated further by processions to the temples and prayers of thanksgiving. By feast and choral song, the banquet loveth peace, and by a gentle song a victory flourisheth afresh, and beside the bowl the singer's voice waxeth brave. The games are, accordingly, the poet's chief inspiration. Thence cometh the glorious hymn that entereth into the minds of the skilled in song. A victory sheds its radiance over the winner's family, and adds fairest renown to his state. The Influence of the Games The influence of the games did not limit itself to the promotion of physical excellence and the cultivation of music and poetry. The assembly of the Hellenes took place under a sacred truce, during which the states, ceasing from war, cultivated friendship. Merchants gathered, especially at the Isthmian festival, to display and sell their wares. Even more beneficial than the exchange of material goods and the fostering of commerce was the intercommunication of ideas and sentiments among the assembled representatives of the entire Hellenic world. This social and intellectual symposium generated a spirit of racial unity and intensified the creative genius in the fields of art and intelligence. While the victory itself inspired the poet to the composition of splendid triumphal songs, the person of the athlete furnished the sculptor with the model, as well as the motive for the most beautiful statues. The national games, accordingly, influenced Greek life in manifold ways, and especially the competitive spirit penetrated and energized every constructive element of Hellenism. Divination it was natural that a people whose life was permeated by religion should seek means of communicating with the gods. So common a use for this purpose was made of the flight of birds that the winged creature came to designate any kind of omen. 
an ox or an ass that may happen to pass, a voice in the street or a slave that you meet, a name or a word by chance overheard, if you deem it an omen, you call it a bird. Oracles All such chance objects or occurrences were regarded as manifestations of the divine will. An oracle, on the other hand, had a fixed location and a definite method of expression. Although the Homeric Greeks had little knowledge of oracles, we find them widespread over Hellas in the period under consideration, and cannot doubt that some of them survived from the Minoan age. The most venerable was that of Zeus at Dodona, where the gods spoke through the rustling of oak leaves. Favoring conditions, however, brought to preeminence the oracle of Apollo at Delphi. His prophetess, the Pythia, sitting on a tripod in the inmost shrine, received from Apollo the answers she gave to inquirers. Often unintelligible, her mutterings were interpreted to the inquirer by the priests of the god. The chief function of the oracle was not to reveal the future. When it made such a venture, the response was couched in ambiguous terms, so as to be right in any event. Thus he who desired more than his meat received an answer according to his folly. The god's advice was generally limited to questions of moral and religious conduct of individuals and states, for instance, as to what gods should be worshipped and with what rites on a given occasion, or by what ceremonies a pollution might be removed. Its approval was sought for the founding of colonies and for other important enterprises. Sometimes it was bribed. Sometimes it showed undue favor to a particular state or political party. Notwithstanding these shortcomings, its general reputation for honesty and wisdom long retained for it the highest, though by no means absolute, authority in Hellenic morals and religion. Divination from Sacrificial Animals it was not always convenient to go to an oracle, and the bird omens came to be thought extremely uncertain. A form of divination unknown to Hesiod, as well as to Homer, and evidently later than their time, found its omens in the vitals of a sacrificed animal. The system seems to have been introduced from Babylonia, and was in full force in the time of the great war with Persia. The commander of troops found this method convenient because he could easily resort to it at any time and place, and perhaps even more because the inspection of several victims in quick succession would most certainly bring omens favorable to his wishes. At last the Greeks were enabled to make divination subserve the practical intelligence. Systematic Thinking About the World Cosmogony In the general belief the gods, who acted under individual caprice, or under the influence of prayer and sacrifice, were the causes of all things in nature and the arbiters of human destiny. In the beginning, the clashing of divine wills wrought chaos in heaven and on earth, till the dawning consciousness of moral and physical unity and order led the poets to devise a system into which all existing things might have a due part. With their conception of the gods in human form, it was but natural that they should attempt to explain the multitude of deities, as of men, and even the plurality of all natural objects, by the one process of birth. A system so devised is a cosmogony, Hesiod, our earliest exponent of this line of thought, assumes the creation, he does not say how, of chaos, then earth. From chaos sprang Erebos and black night, and from night in turn sprang bright ether and day. An earth bare starry heaven, Oranos, to the end that there might be for the blessed gods a habitation steadfast forever. The youngest son of earth and heaven was Kronos of crooked counsels, 
of all her children most terrible. The Supremacy of Zeus We need not numerate the hosts of supernatural beings thus generated, of monstrous or lovely form, deadly or beneficent, but may pass on to the birth of Zeus, son of Cronos. When he grew to manhood in the rich island of Crete, he conquered the Titans and other monstrous beings, and himself reigned supreme. He was king in heaven, himself holding the thunder and the smoking thunderbolt, having by his might overcome his father Cronos. And he duly appointed their portions unto all the deathless gods alike, and declared unto them their honors. From Cosmogony to Science, Aid from Egypt In this way, the poet thought, came unity, system, and order from chaos. With the accumulation of knowledge and the growth of an inquiring spirit, however, the Hellenes would not satisfy themselves with such childlike reasoning. It was but natural that the next step should be taken by the Ionians, the most enterprising and inventive of the Greeks. Among them were men who visited Egypt and perhaps other parts of the Orient, not merely for trade, but also for sightseeing and instruction. Among them was Thales of Miletus. In Egypt, they learned such elementary science as the priests cultivated, especially arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. The development of these branches of knowledge, together with the elements of architecture and civil engineering, had been made possible only by the organized priesthoods of Egypt and Babylonia. This knowledge consisted purely of facts ascertained by experience and arbitrarily classified, but wanting the elements of reason and demonstration. Hence it was far from science in the present sense of the word. The contribution of the Hellenic mind, brilliantly imaginative and untrammeled by religious or other convention, was to pierce beneath the fact to the underlying cause, and thus to create real science. The first step in this process, taken by Thales, marks him as the founder, not merely of Greek science, but in the only true sense of the term, of the world's science. Thales of Miletus early 6th century. Though we cannot be sure that everything ascribed to Thales of Miletus was really his work, there is no doubt that he contributed greatly to mathematics and astronomy. The story that while stargazing he fell into a well is told to illustrate the impracticability of the philosopher. The moral thus pointed, however, is nullified by another story that he speculated in olives on his foreknowledge of the weather and reaped great profit from the transaction. It may well be that he foretold the eclipse of the sun, which occurred on May 28, 585, though it hardly seems possible that his knowledge enabled him to fix the very day and hour. Thales's Philosophic Theory, Its Value However that may be, his fame rests not upon any individual scientific discovery, but upon his new conception of cause. Accepting from the poets the idea of the unity of things and the necessity of causation, he sought for cause, not among the gods, but in nature itself. Water, he declared, was the one source and substance of all things. In his statement, too, that the world is full of gods, he seems to mean that things contain in themselves the conscious power to create other things. Although not wholly free from the influence of mythology, and wrong in choosing a material substance is his first principle. Yet in displacing the gods by natural causation, he took the all-important step from mythology and theology to science and philosophy. Within the historical period, this change has proved the most momentous revolution 
in the intellectual history of mankind. The Ionic School, Anaximander, middle of the 6th century. The Ionic School of philosophy, thus founded by Thales, sought the first principle in matter. He left no writings, but a pupil, Anaximander, published a scientific treatise, probably the first prose work in the Greek language. His principle was the unlimited, evidently a boundless reservoir from which all things come and to which everything returns. In opposition to the poets, he thought out a mechanical process for explaining the formation and ultimate destruction of the existing world, in fact of an unending succession of worlds. Evolution it could not be called. Our present earth, he taught, is a cylinder whose upper surface we inhabit. This idea, too, is an advance beyond the earlier conception of the world as a round, flat disk. From information gathered by Ionian navigators, he made the first map of the earth, and hence may be regarded as the earliest geographer. Pythagoras The further history of this school need not concern us here. A newer and deeper meaning was given to philosophy by Pythagoras of Samos, who in the latter half of the 6th century migrated to Croton, Italy, 522. Learned in mathematics of the Ionian school, he sought in numbers the primary cause of all things, whether musical harmonies, stellar movements, the nature of the gods, or even abstract ideas. This attention to numbers gave a great impetus to the study of mathematics, hence to exactness in science, but it was marred by his attaching to numbers mystical powers alien to true science. In fact, Pythagoras is distinguished as a mystic and a moral reformer even more than for his contribution to science. With the Orphists, he believed in the transmigration of souls. Their attainment to a higher condition in a future existence depended on moral conduct in this. The chief aim of Pythagoras seems to have been a life of moral purity, to which philosophy, religion, and mystic initiations were merely contributory. His school was a secret association which extended to most of the cities of southern Italy. It cultivated dietetics and medicine. It enjoined a life of moral discipline and self-restraint. Taking a political turn and acquiring the rule over many states, these societies endeavored to manage affairs according to their ethical standard. We must regard the organization as an element, both product and factor, in the deepening religious and moral sense of the period now under consideration. Xenophanes, 572 to 480. A further advance in these general philosophic and ethical directions was made by Xenophanes of Colophon, who emigrated to Elia, Italy, whence the school he founded is known as Eliatic. He indignantly assails the Homeric conception of the gods as beings of human form, who lie and steal and commit other such sins as would shame the race of men. Beings of this kind are the creation of human fancy. The real God is one, like man neither in form nor thought. He is all eye, all mind, all ear. He controls all things without labor by the power of his thought. He is eternal, unchangeable, and spiritual. Here seems to be the enunciation of a pure monotheism. It is clear, too, that this thinker's interest centers in moral improvement. He chides his fellow citizens of Colophon for having adopted the luxurious habits of the Lydians. They throng the marketplace by thousands, in purple gowns, with hair well adorned, their bodies dripping with fragrant oils. 
it is the duty of sensible men when they gather at banquets to pray god to give us power to do justice his god therefore is a moral force and the author of the poem cited here is as much theologian and moral reformer as philosopher he could look forward with good hope believing that the powers have not revealed to men all things from the beginning but that mortals by searching gradually found out the better improved conceptions of virtue intellectual progress connected itself on one side with advancing religion on the other with moral development a better conception of virtue arose it was no longer physical perfection or the free gift of the gods as in homer but had come to mean especially moral excellence which men had to strive for it is hard to be a worthy man now seems trite but was then a fresh stimulating truth to maintain his character one had to exercise self-restraint sophrosyne this was a new word in the greek vocabulary yet one involving the most imperative of hellenic commandments it was no small gain that in this struggle for moral improvement man should now have the gods as helpers better examples of purity and right than those of homer and demanding in the worshipper clean hands and an upright heart improvements in domestic and in interstate law moral progress showed itself in the better safeguarding of domestic peace by the establishment of competent courts for homicide and the abolition of the blood feud by the improvement in the condition of women involving the abolition of marriage by capture and purchase and in the better protection of the masses from the brutality of aristocratic rule in interstate relations piracy once creditable had fallen into disgrace and was greatly limited by the rise of naval powers in place of those undefined relations between states which void of treaty and diplomatic representation constantly tempted to hostilities written truces usually for a definite number of years were substituted and proved an invaluable aid to peace often states submitted their disputes to arbitration and in all the known cases of this period both parties accepted the decision more primitive in character though but little less humane was the custom of settling controversies through the battle of champions still occasionally employed generally captives were not massacred as in earlier time but held for ransom or at the worst enslaved the bodies of the dead were no longer mutilated or left a prey to dogs and birds but were given back by the victors under a truce as a rule however greeks showed far greater humanity toward their own race than toward foreigners whom they contemptuously termed barbarians in brief a body of hellenic law was developing which under religious sanctions regulated the relations among the states of hellas multiplication of ethical proverbs examples of ethical truths may be found in the moral proverbs of the seven sages among whom were thales and solon know thyself everything in moderation it is hard to be a good man and other such proverbs attributed to them were accepted as inspired rules of life hesiod is the first who collected a moral code and after him the elegiac and lyric poets abound in moral saws in fact the greeks had come to be a moralizing people doubtless such proverbs were a great aid to write briefly it may be said that throughout this period legislator poet scientific thinker and practical sage in their several ways were exerting themselves for the moral improvement of mankind 
The Beginnings of Historical Thought It remains to notice the view at this time coming to be taken of mankind's past. Little detail is given of the creation of human beings. Hesiod simply informs us of the golden race, which the immortals originally produced, a race that knew no toil or sorrow or death, but passed away in sleep to become good spirits, eternal guardians of mortal men. Then ensued a silver race of inferior men, acquainted with sin and grief. Then a brazen race, warlike and insolent, slain by one another's hands, went down to the realm of Hades. Then came the juster race of heroes, who, having fought round Troy, were gathered to the islands of the blast. Lastly arose the race of iron, among whom the poet lived. Neither by day shall there ever cease from weariness and woe, neither in the night from wasting, and sore cares shall the gods give them. The idea of an original golden age of moral purity and physical perfection from which mankind fell has a large place in the history of ancient thought. How the Greeks view the origin of their race As to their own race, the Greeks of this period claim to trace it from Prometheus, the heroic friend of man. His son was Deucalion, who with his wife Pyrrha were alone save at the time of the great flood. They were the parents of Helen, the eponym of the Hellenes. It was not until the time of Hesiod that the Greeks had become sufficiently conscious of their ethnic unity to group themselves thus under a single name. Helen's sons were Doris, Zuthos, and Aeolus. By assuming that Zuthos had two sons, Achaeus and Eon, the Greeks of this period accounted for the names of the four races, Dorians, Achaeans, Ionians, and Aeolians, most prominent in early Hellenic history. Such eponyms were originally considered ancestors of their races, but came in time to be regarded as kings. The Beginnings of Historical and Geographical Literature The process of weaving genealogies did not stop at the point above mentioned. Founders of cities, ruling dynasties, and individual gentes had all to trace their pedigrees back to some hero, and through him to one of the greater gods. In an aristocratic society, it was but natural that the interest in the past should center in pedigrees and project itself beyond recent generations to the beginnings of races and families. Among the genealogy mongers, who swarmed in every city, were a few who committed their results to writing. The earliest genealogist known to us by name was Cadmos of Miletus, a contemporary of Anaximander, and author of the Settlement of Ionia, about 550. The first genealogies to survive the present day are those of Acusileus of Argos, about 500. Such authors were described as logography, writers of prose. They merely converted into prose, extended, and systematized the existing genealogical epics. They were the brood of Hesiod, with the wings of their imagination clipped by the limitations of prose, with reason wider awake, with a nascent critical power. The most eminent of the class was Hecateus of Miletus, who took an active part in public affairs during the Ionian Revolt. His genealogies must have contained, in addition to myths, some historical information, and his description of the earth was for its day a geography of distinguished merit. An awakening consciousness of the distinction between myth and fact is proved by his own words. I write what I believe to be true, for the various stories of the Hellenes are, in my opinion, ridiculous. 
the logography among whom he is numbered were the connecting link between epic poetry and history owing the equipment of their minds to the intellectual progress of the sixth century the children of hesiod so to speak and schoolfellows with the earliest philosophers end of chapter nine